All right, if you have a Bible today, we're going to be all over the place, so I'll give you that warning. Uh, but I'll also just throw this out for, next, for you. Next week, we are starting a six-month in-depth, verse-by-verse study through the book of Ephesians. And so we'll be kicking that off next week, so you don't want to miss the start of that. Next week, starting through the book of Ephesians, it'll take us up through the summer. We'll have a short little series in the summer, and then in the fall, we will more than likely do uh, the book of Exodus So Ephesians starting next week, but today we have something a little bit different. And that's because over the next two weeks, we have two important dates that are coming up on the calendar. Uh, One is the MLK Jr. birthday, which is actually the 15th, but it will be celebrated the following Monday. And then also next Sunday is what is regarded as Sanctity of Life Sunday. And so MLK Jr., that day has typically been something that has been related to fighting and combating the evil that is racism. And then Sanctity of Life Sunday is something that has historically been something that's been about fighting and combating uh, the evil that is abortion. And so what we have been doing for 10 years now at Providence is purposefully linking those two days Uh, at one point in January, not just because they're close together on the calendar, but because they are of the same like stream of thought. They are both sanctity of life issues. They are both, uh, you know, image of God issues. And they are tied at the hip. And we do this because if you look around, and I've told you this for several years now, We purposely link these because what happens a lot of times in the church at large and definitely in culture as well is that these two things are approached as almost diametrically opposed. And so what you see is that people who are uh, seeking to fight abortion are not the same people that are seeking to fight racism. And people that are often seeking, this is often not always true, but often seeking to combat the evil of racism are not the same people who are seeking to combat the evil of abortion. They they talk past each other a lot of times. But these two things are both, like for the people of God, for the church, we must be passionate about both because they are both God issues. They are both sanctity of life issues equally sanctity of life issues. And so when it comes to the sanctity of life, abortion and racism and a whole litany of other issues, when it comes to all of this, and I'm going to date myself a little bit here, but it's, it's kind of like the old Andre Agassi commercial. Image is everything. And by that, I do not mean the image of the church. We are not seeking uh, as a church to just be a bunch of social justice warriors masquerading as Christianity to fit in with culture. But rather understanding that the image of God marks everything. Understanding that the fact that all humans are made in the image of God, impacts everything. That's what I mean when I say image is everything. God's image, the Imago Dei, flavors everything as it relates to human rights. His image is everything. And this is a 2,000-year-old historical undergirding of the church. 
This is not some new thing. Hospitals exist because Christians believe in the Imago Dei, in the image of God. It is Christians who began hospitals. It is Christians who began orphanages. It is all these things born out of, historically, the image of God. But being honest with you, the moment we start speaking on various social and humanitarian issues, we start categorizing them based upon political platforms. But friends, fighting racism isn't liberal. Advocating for the abused isn't liberal. Protecting the unborn isn't conservative. Loving immigrants and refugees isn't liberal. These things are biblical before they're ever put into political boxes. And so as Christians, we don't play that political box game. We have a completely different box. And we don't care if people label it blue or red, elephant or donkey. That's meaningless to us. We care what God would label it and because we want him to label it as faithful to his word. Regardless of how other people would label it. Because this is our rule. This is our authority. Not politicians. Not political platforms or boxes. This. And because we're so prone to forget all that the image of God encompasses, that image is everything, we must continually remind ourselves of these things. And that's why we do this every year. And we do it all throughout the year, but we dedicate, of our 52 Sundays, we dedicate one every year. And you're like, Joe, are we going to do this? You're going to keep, yeah, I am going to keep doing this. Just like I'm going to keep encouraging you to read your Bible. And I'm going to keep encouraging you to share your faith. I'm going to keep encouraging you to to pray and to value Jesus supremely. I'm going to keep on telling you those things and these things because we must be reminded so that we do not grow, as Lee read earlier, weary in doing good. And that we continue to do good as we have opportunity to everyone. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. And so this morning, that spirit of reminders, that's what I want to do. I want to remind you. I want to remind you that first of all, or maybe for some of you, is actually informing you. But either way, number one in your notes is this. All humans are made in the image of God. All humans are made in the image of God. And so listen again to the words of Genesis 1 that that John read earlier. Genesis 1, starting in verse 24. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heaven, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so clearly, I mean, the text just, I mean, it hammers it home three times in just a couple of verses. We are made in the image of God, male and female, equally in his image. The question then is, what does that mean? Does that mean like we look like him or we can do things like him? Maybe. But beyond that, it's that he has put a spiritual, intellectual, and moral component into us that the rest of creation lacks. That's what the image of God is. We are spiritual beings, moral beings, intellectual beings. And it is mankind alone that bears this image. Nowhere in all of creation is anything described as bearing the image of God except humans. The crown jewel of creation. And this applies to all people. All humans. Every single person on the planet or who has ever been on the planet or who will ever be on the planet till the Lord comes again, is made in the image of God. Every single person. Every, can't, every single person. From the unborn, to the orphan, to widows and the elderly, to persons of disability and special needs, to sex slaves and trafficked persons, to the destitute, the impoverished, the starving, those struggling to survive because of dirty water, immigrants, refugees, victims of sexual abuse and assault. All made. Every single one of those. Equally made. Equally made in the image of God. Biblically, the sanctity of life encompasses all of this. We can't pigeonhole. And what that means then is that all people, therefore, have equal worth and value and dignity and are equally deserving of respect, kindness, and bare minimum basic human rights, including for the unborn, the right to life. And just as an aside, this also means that your life has value. Your life has meaning. Your life has purpose. That you were created by the Most High God on purpose, for a purpose. I mean, Psalm 39, verse 13 says this, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Okay, God did this in you and for you on purpose. And so for those of you who maybe struggle with this at times, drink this truth down. It is good. You have been made in the image of God on purpose. No accidents. Mom and daddy may think you're an accident. You are not. 
There are no accidents. There are no accidental children. This is true of you. You have been made in the image of God and your life counts and is sacred. But we also have to remember that's not just true of ourselves. That is true of everyone. Equally. Every life has value. Every life has worth. Every life has dignity. Every life counts. Every life is sacred because it's been made in the image of God equally. There's not some people that are more in the image of God than others. Equally. All humans are made in the image of God. That's number one. Number two in your notes then. All Christians are to live in the image of God. All Christians are to live in the image of God. And so flip over to Romans chapter 8. Or you can listen to... Actually, no, flip there. I want you to see this one. Not that I don't want you to see the other ones, but I do want you to see this one in particular. Romans chapter 8 in the black hardback Bibles around you. This is on page 944. Page 944, Romans chapter 8. While folks are flipping there, if you don't have a Bible at home that you can read easily, grab one of those black hardback ones and take it home with you. It's our gift to you, okay? You can have it. Romans chapter 8, look at verse 28. Familiar coffee cup verse for a lot of people, right? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Wonderful verse. But you keep going. 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. All right, we're getting into Ephesians. That word's used a gazillion times in the first chapter. So in two weeks, we're going to have a sermon called The Elephant in the Text. And we're going to talk 100% about what is predestination and the good news that it is. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be, look at this, conformed to the image of his Son. So not only are we made in God's image, as Christians, we are to be conformed into the image of God. And that's both positionally, the moment we become a Christian, we are in Christ. We are united with Christ. We are in union with Christ. So there's a positional being conformed to the image of His Son. But then there's a progressive, always, ever increasing, being conformed into the image of Christ, who is the image of God. He is the image of the invisible God. Colossians chapter 1. And so we as Christians are to ever increasingly live and love and care like Christ. We are to be His hands and His feet to everyone, especially those of the household of faith. Back in the day, a lot of people wore bracelets uh, that had WWJD on them. A lot of people wore those, right? And what, what would Jesus do, right? The bracelets may not be in style, but that question should never go out of style. What would Jesus do? Like in this situation that I'm in, whatever it is, like let's step out of sanctity of life for a minute. In this situation that I'm focusing, that I'm fo- what, what would Jesus do in this situation? But then sp- specifically, as we're talking about sanctity of life and all of these, what would Jesus do in these? What would Jesus do? As we come to these issues, we need to ask ourselves, what would Jesus do? And as we come to social media, we need to ask ourselves, what would Jesus post? 
WWJP. Thank you, John. We are to be ever-increasingly conformed to His image. And so while all humans are made in the image of God, all Christians are to be everly, ever-increasingly conformed to God's image. We are to live in God's image. We are to live that out. Ever-increasingly loving like Him and caring like Him. Thus, and this is number three, all Christians are to care for all humans. All Christians, number three in your notes, are to care for all humans. And obviously you cannot care for every single person on the planet. That's not the point. The point is that we are to care for all kinds of individuals. All kinds of individuals. From the unborn to the orphan. Widows and elderly, persons of disability and special needs, sex slave, trafficked persons, destitute, impoverished, starving, struggling to survive because of dirty water, illegal immigrants, refugees, sexually abused, assaulted, on and on and on we could go. Okay, it means Galatians 6, seeking to do good to everyone. Right? It's Matthew 25 where Jesus totally flips the script on the lawyer. The lawyer comes and, and, and wants to find out this, you know, with the good Samaritan. He comes and he wants to, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus completely flips the script, telling him the story of the good Samaritan and says, no, 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 buddy, it's not, you know, who is my neighbor? The question is, whose neighbor am I? That's the question we need to ask. We're trying to, you know, just sit around trying to figure out what someone has to do to qualify to be my neighbor. No, our call is what kind of neighbor am I going to be to them anyway? That's what the Good Samaritan's all about. And so under this idea of whose neighbor am I, I want to highlight a couple of sanctity of life issues affecting us and our neighbors. And so let's talk abortion for a minute. And just statistically, one out of every four women have had an abortion. And so I know that, just statistically, that means probably dozens in here. And that's not even counting parents who forced it, boyfriends who forced it, or left when their girlfriends refused. And so if you're in that group, and if you are in Christ, listen to me, you are, you are forgiven. Okay, if you are in Christ, you are forgiven. There is no sin with more power than the cross of Jesus Christ. You cannot out-sin the grace of God. So if you are in Christ, you are forgiven. Your sin is gone. Your guilt is gone. Your shame is... You realize Jesus, like He bore our shame and our guilt as well? And so don't reshackle yourself to what has already been paid for. You have been set free. Everyone who has trusted in Christ has been set free. And anyone who would repent and believe can be set free from any kind of sin. And so, if you've never trusted Christ, trust Him today, now, in this moment. Trust Christ. And so through Christ, God sets us free. But in that freedom, now we want to move forward 
for the glory of God and the good of mankind. So we've got to talk about these things. We've got to talk about abortion. The modern day Holocaust that's claimed the lives of more than 60 million children. And somebody's like, whoa, 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 Joe, you, you just said children. Fetuses aren't children. And furthermore, Joe, you said all humans are made in the image of God, but, but fetuses aren't humans, just a collection of cells. I'm just going to stop you right there. It is 2020. Scientifically, we're not even debating this biblically, scientifically, you can't even begin to make that argument anymore. Unique DNA. Heartbeat and brain waves at eight weeks. That's before many people even know they're pregnant. Fingerprints are being formed. 4D ultrasound. You can see children reacting to stimuli, recoiling from a prick. They can feel pain. Sucking their thumbs. Scientifically, you can't even begin to make that argument. That, That argument is over. It's not even up for debate anymore. And it is these things, these truths, this awareness that the baby isn't just a collection of, of cells, but a human that we can see through ultrasound, that we can hear through listening, that we can actually do surgery on in the womb. It are, it's these truths that is leading to the continuing decline of abortion that's happening. Abortion is decreased 19% since 2011. And ultimately, it's these truths, seeing the baby is a sonogram that will, in science, that will lead to the full fall and ultimate outlaw of abortion. Because it's just absolute hypocrisy and illogic that if a woman gets in her car and is driving to the clinic to have an abortion and she has a wreck on the way, it's vehicular homicide. For the baby who dies. That's on the law. That's a law. But if she got to the clinic and goes in and and the abortion is performed, same result, the baby is dead. Now it's just a choice. Here homicide, here choice. We get in a dangerous place when we get into a position where the, the right to life is based upon being wanted. I want you, you can live. I don't want you, you can't live. That begins to become a very, very scary place. And what kind of bizarre world is it where that, I mean, that is how you are, like, that's the choice of life, wanted or not wanted. And what kind of bizarre world is it where a woman is praised for killing her baby so that she can have a career in acting? Something like, Joe, this is, this is reproductive health care Friend, with that logic, slavery was job creation. And so, friends, we keep contending for life. Let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Friends, here's the deal. If we really want to see abortion come to a and we must also fight poverty. Uh, just statistics. 50% of women who had an abortion had incomes at 100% of the federal poverty level. What that is, is a single wom- woman with no children living on $11,670 a year. 
$11,670 a year. 50% of abortions are carried out by women at that poverty level. An additional 26%. So now we're up to a total of 70%, 75% of all abortions, $23,340 per year. 75% of all abortions, of all, all, all the women who had an abortion, had incomes less than $24,000 a year. And so not surprisingly, the inability to afford a child is among the top reasons a woman has an, an abortion. And so if we want to combat abortion, we've got to combat poverty. And straight up, just straight up, this is why organizations like Planned Parenthood are only and always, go look, only and always in low-income areas. It is not because they have a heart for the low-income areas. It is because there is a market to make money. And prey on women in poverty. But back to the impoverished pregnant woman. I mean, put yourself in her shoes. A new mom can expect to pay $3,000 in diapers and baby formula and, and just the basics. This is not even counting furniture, all, those, all that you need. I mean, goodness gracious, when Sarah and I had babies and we would travel somewhere, we needed to rent a U-Haul to take all the equipment with us, right? There's a lot that goes in it. Tons and tons of stuff. And so for the single woman with an unplanned pregnancy living on less than $12,000 per year, raising a child seems impossible. Even unsurvivable. And so for her, a 5 to 10 minute procedure at a neighborhood clinic for about $500 that she may hate having and mourn over for the rest of her life. Seems like her only option. And so that is why pro-life advocacy has to focus on the mother and not just the unborn. It's survival to her. And so we come around and we love and we support and we care for the mom. We find ways to do that. And there's a lot of work that can be done, certainly. We need to teach on abstinence education, teaching God's design for sexuality, God's design for human flourishing. All of this has to absolutely be a part of our work, but we cannot afford to be morally selective. We cannot work to end abortion while being ignorant or unmoved by the social and economic factors that contribute to it. I mean, scripturally, caring for the poor is an essential practice of our faith. It's all over the New Testament. In Galatians 2.9, And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, this is Paul writing, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only, verse 10, they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. And so if we're going to speak up for the unborn, we have to speak up for the poor. Okay? But understanding that, the imi- that, that image is everything, this also extends to the satanic evil of racism. 
And listen, for sure progress has been made in this area. For sure progress has been made. We celebrate that. But we're not there yet. Uh, just a couple of very small examples even. All right? Th- these aren't even outright like things. But perhaps unseen under the surface that we've never even recognized. And this can go either way. White person towards a black person, black person towards a white person, Hispanic person, but Asian. I mean, just un- I'll just give you a couple of, of, of examples. Over the years, when I have stood in this pulpit, and I have spoken about abortion singularly, not connected to anything else like we're doing today, just singularly. I've had people come to me and be like, wow, Joe, thank you so much for speaking on that topic. So bold. Thank you for, for being willing to stand in the pulpit and say those things. But when I've talked about race singularly, not connected to other things, it's often been a whole lot more quiet. Or when I quote the reformer Martin Luther, which y'all know I do all the time, right? No one ever comes to me and talks about his blatant and horrible anti-Semitism. Just absolute, absolute sin, horribly. No one comes and tells me that. But if I quote the great reformer Martin Luther King Jr., I often have people come to me and say, now, you know, Joe, he he was quite the womanizer. And yeah, he was. Absolute, horrible sin. But why point that out about him if you're not going to point out the flaws of other heroes of the faith or our nation? And so, friends, racism isn't just the releasing of dogs or spraying people with hoses. It's not segregation from school or bathrooms or restaurants. It's any level of prejudgment based solely upon someone's skin color. And it has individual and systemic components that literally books could and have been written on. Housing districts, how those are, mortgage loans and laws, how those work. I don't have time for all that, but I will give you one small example, again, under the surface that we probably don't think about. How many of you learned about African history in your public school education? That's awesome. There are some of you. But all of us learned about European history. Right? Why? Is there, you know... Does Africa have nothing to contribute? Oh, no, I'm not saying that, Joe. I'd never say that. But, you know, Europe is where we're from. That's where white folks are from. That's not predominantly where black people, Asian people, Latino people, half of the U.S. is from. And yet when European history is the only real world history that's talked about in our schools, what are we teaching? That it's the most important and that anything else is lesser and sort of odd. And so we fail to learn the amazing architecture and culture and engineering of Asians or Africans. Except the Egyptians who we, surprise, we always separate off from Africa. Curious. And so friends, I am just saying that we always need to examine I need to examine my heart. You need to examine your heart. For perhaps not even outright racist behaviors, but even like just 
unperceived inclinations or insensitivities that we don't even realize because we just don't know what we don't know. I was talking to a friend uh, just this week and I was asking him a question about something and, and he, was, he, was t- he was giving me an answer and, and he was like, you, you, you don't understand the cult- like my, my culture. You don't understand wh- what this would look like in my culture. And we can't understand unless we are in proximity, unless we ask and unless we talk and unless we get together with people who hold different opinions and different ethnicities than us and uh, don't get together with someone who already agrees with you. Find someone who doesn't agree with you and ask them to help you see from their point of view. At least learn, talk, listen. This is part of valuing the sanctity of all life. Respecting the Imago Dei that is in all people. Every single person on the planet. Always looking in our hearts. Looking below the surface. And then finally this morning, under this heading of sanctity of life, I want to clearly and unequivocally call out the evil of sexual assault and abuse. Because this too is a sanctity of life issue. And we need to be aware and we need to be actively fighting against it. Now, this is part of contending for life and the image of God that all people intrinsically bear. And so we must speak up for the defense of the helpless, including innocent victims of sexual abuse who need a safe place to share their stories. And who need direction toward the emotional and spiritual healing found in Jesus. Because the world has never provided a safe and secure place from those who would abuse. That's why, the world, that's why the church must be that place. And listen, I get the negative headlines that have been out there this year. About the Southern Baptist Convention in particular. What a sin, awful, ugly, denominational thing that has happened. With like 700 unreported instances of sexual abuse. Ugliness. Horrid. Just abuse, missteps, cover-ups, evil. But it is possible. And that's like denominational, not here. Denominational. But it is possible, and beyond that, it is needed that the church be that place of safety and refuge. And the responsibility, like it's the responsibility of church leaders to make sure the church of God is a haven where no one is touched inappropriately. And a refuge where hurting individuals can confide in a teacher or in an elder or in in a friend. Okay, shepherds must protect the sheep. And that's why we have pages of policies about what we do and don't do in taking care of children and other circumstances as well. And that's why we have repeated, like today, trainings to remind, you've got to do this. Policies only work if we follow them. You have got to do this. You've got, here's why, here's why, here's why. And so today you're going to get a lot of here's why. In training. Because we love and we want to protect and we want to shepherd well. 
But as you dip your toe into just this area of sexual assault and abuse, just to even begin talking about it, it it either requires like a one-paragraph explanation like I've done here with a couple of statements, or I need at least like 40 minutes to just begin getting into it, right? Y'all don't want 40 more minutes. I know that. And so I'm going to ask you to do me a favor and do yourself a favor and do your neighbor a favor and do the church a favor. And that's to become a bit more aware of this. And one of the ways you can do that, the easiest way you can begin to do that, is back on December the 16th of 2018. I preached a sermon that was like focused on sexual abuse. December the 16th, 2018. You can grab it on the website, InsidePBC.com. Click on Sermons, 2018. December 16th. You can get it on the podcast. You can get it on our app. But December 16th, 2018, go back and listen to that. The sermon's called Sin Begets Sin, but I wrote that title long before I ever prepared the sermon, so I don't even talk about that at all. And I think I'll talk about it in the intro. But then the whole rest of the sermon is focused on the evil of sexual abuse with a little tag on at the end, the evil of apathetic dads. Because David was apathetic. It's out of 2 Samuel 13 and 14. Go back and listen to that, please. Okay? Be reminded. We need to be reminded. And that's the whole reason we're doing this today. We need to be reminded of our call to contend for the sanctity of all life and never pigeonhole. Never live in political boxes. We don't play that game. What does Scripture say? I will follow Scripture regardless of what red people will say, regardless of what blue people will say. I don't care. We contend for the sanctity of all life. Again, from the unborn to the orphan, widows, elderly, and this culture of death and euthanasia. We contend against that. Persons of disability and special needs. Right? We talked about like, shouldn't abort, but then we don't do anything to help people who, when a child is born with special needs. Now, we being culture here at Providence, praise you guys. I love how we are working towards ever increasingly doing that well. I'm so excited about Stacy's training that she's bringing today on inclusion in classrooms. I mean, she's got a master's degree on this. Super excited. Expert. We contend also for sex slaves and trafficked persons. Slavery is at an all-time high in our history of, a, of the world. Destitute, impoverished, starving, famine still happens, right? And I get that people come on television and they, they work for money and they say, send us their money and we'll, we'll give a penny to them and we'll keep 99 cents for ourselves. I get that. But that doesn't mean the need's not there and the calling to help and support's not there still. People are struggling to survive because of dirty water. I mean, if we could get Pepto-Bismol to places, people's lives would be saved. Loving immigrants, regardless of how they got here, that can be figured out. Our call to love as Christians, love, I'm talking about the political process, I'm talking about we, 
my neighbor right here in front of me, this person, I'm to love them. Refugees, same thing. Figure that out. But this person in my path, as I have opportunity, Galatians 6, to do good, I do good. God puts them in my path, I do good. Victims of sexual abuse and assault. All of this is sanctity of life issues. People of different religions, ethnicities, sexual orientation. We disagree with different religion, different sexual orientations, right? Doesn't mean that we don't love these people and point them to Christ. That's sanctity of life. And we even love people of different political and philosophical persuasions. We love them too. They are made in the image of God. And so let us not grow weary. Nationwide change has happened before. Wilberforce in England. Abraham Lincoln here in the U.S. And then later, Dr. King. And it can happen again. We can get there. But it's going to take everyone repenting of apathy. Praying. And engaging. Lovingly engaging. Not tit for tat. We don't fight like that. Not fighting fire with fire. That's not how Christians behave. But truth spoken in love. Again, what would Jesus do? And again, what would Jesus post? Notice there are no prerequisites here. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge and we confess that we, we all do, in some way, shape, or form, have an have a, have a inclination to pigeonhole certain things as it relates to uh, the sanctity of life. We, we often understand that people are made in the image of God, but we, we, for some reason, Lord, the sinful nature within us, disassociate. We grow, we develop theological amnesia. Help us not to. 
And help us, Father, in this area and in every area of our life to seek to obey your word and leave the consequences to you. Help us first to bow to, no, help us to only bow to you. You are our king, you are our Lord, you are our savior. And you love. And you serve. And you came after. And you cared for. And you forgave. And you are our authority. As Lord and King. And you are also our example. Help us to serve because you served. Help us to forgive because you forgave. Help us to love others because you loved us even when we were your enemies. Help us to be wise. But help us to be loving. Help us to never justify or excuse away our call to love. And help us to be people who drip grace to everyone who you put in our path. As you give us opportunity to do good to everyone, and especially those of the household of faith. We ask all of this in Jesus' name.